All right, I'm back with Kevin McKernan again. Um, he's been a guest on the show a few times. And the last time you were here, we talked about your review, not your review, but a, a number of scientists got together and did a review of the Corman-Drosten report. And um, since, the, so let me just, I'm just gonna do a quick recap for anybody who doesn't know what that was. And please correct me if I get any of this wrong. Um, so the Corman-Drosten paper was the paper on which the, the PCR test that's widely used in Europe, and I think elsewhere in the US, possibly Australia, um, was based. And you guys took a look at it, a bunch of scientists took a look at it, found some serious problems, and came out with your review of that. Um, go ahead. Yeah, so from there, uh, we got attacked online, as you'd expect. Um, mm -hmm. But we, we took some of those attacks quite seriously. And so we, we, I think the number one critique of our work was that we didn't pick up a pipette and and really do any wet lab experiments. And so we, we didn't really have to, but we, we backfilled that lack uh, in the first paper with 20 other peer reviewed papers that did that for us. So there's a, a now, now there's an addendum to this um, re retraction request that we sent to Eurosurveillance uh, in early January, I think January 14th, I think we published that. That's, about, that's a 60 page document that, that addresses the people, any critiques of our retraction request. Uh, the main critique was there was no wet lab experimentation here. You should pick up a pipette and figure this out. And uh, we should have just spelled that out more clearly in the first paper that, well, there's 20 other people that have already done that and put it through peer review. There's no point in doing it 21st. Uh, and here they are. And, and, uh, put forward all the, all the different papers that support those initial 10 concerns. Um, now, since then, Eurosurveillance, I think just last week, came out with a public announcement um, that, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. When we put out that addendum, like the next week, the WHO started changing the language on, on qPCR. I don't know why. I don't know if it's related, but that, that just happened. Interesting. Like, I didn't realize it was... That's yeah, when that right, happened. Okay. Right during Biden's, I think, inauguration, they started mm -hmm. making some noise about, about, hey, everyone pay attention to the CQ values, the CT values, and pay attention to your limit of detection. So they, they started uh, putting some warnings out there. Uh, no, not with any specifics on any one given test, just kind of a general statement about it. Um, so Eurosurveillance last week came out with their... Um, their statement on this, which is that they got five anonymous people to review it and they found nothing wrong and they're gonna continue as planned with leaving it up there. Um, but uh, something accidentally happened in another individual's podcast. Um, a scientist very well respected in the field, Stephen Buston, um, admitted to being one of those reviewers uh, in this person's podcast. This is the Planet Waves podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but in that same podcast, he also admitted to not having looked at the Drosten primers not knowing whether they interacted with one another. And that was kind of the core um, thrust of our paper, which was the primers interact with one another. And when they do that, they create false negatives and false positives. So it was kind of an admission that he reviewed it, but didn't review it. So just to be clear, he was not one of the reviewers on the Drosten paper. He was- Correct. He was not. He was okay. on, he was one of the reviewers that Eurosurveillance asked to review our retraction so yeah. They claim there was five, they're anonymous, and no one's going to get to see their work. You know, so it's a little bit of a, we investigated ourselves and found nothing wrong, and we were not going to give you any of the evidence for the investigation. Just trust us. Right. So just, uh, just to play devil's advocate on, on, his, on his behalf, is it, is it completely unreasonable 
to, or is it at all unreasonable to expect that someone reviewing your paper would have looked at the primers for, for the Drawson paper? Is that, is that just, just a basic thing you would expect someone to do? I, I, would, I would hope so, because in the first paper we submitted, we pointed out that there were primer dimers. Mm-hmm. Um, in the second paper, maybe he didn't see the second one, but the second one, we really hammered it home that it's not just a single pair of primers that are creating problems. There's, there's two sets of primers that are causing problems. There's, the, there's one that's known as the RDRP assay. That one interacts with itself. Uh, and then there's one known as the, um, there's two other primers in there, an E-primer that interacts only in the presence of an assay it shouldn't it, it, that should be in the next well over. But if there's any contamination, you can get a primer there, a primer dimer there. So um, the first one only underscored that as one of the 10 problems. And this the addendum really drilled into the primer dimer issue. Now, maybe he didn't see that second addendum uh, before he did his review, but he should have been alerted to the fact that we pointed out these dimers in the first one and even supplied a picture of the primer dimers in that paper. So he skimmed over that or ignored it or chose not to take it very seriously. Um, and just to, pull, sorry, just to pull back a little bit for people who may not know what primer dimers are or why this is significant, what we're talking about, again, correct me if I'm wrong, is the, these are issues that can lead to a, a, a signal that makes it look like there's a positive result. Is that that's that's right? You want your primers to be to be landing on or hybridizing to the target RNA in the virus. You don't want them landing on the human genome, and you don't want them landing on themselves. If they land on themselves, they start to do unexpected things. They make they amplify just the primers, and they can give you false signals. Now it's it's generally rare that that happens with TACMAN assays because there's a third primer called the probe that needs to be involved in that gymnastics mm-hmm. uh, for the fluorescent signal uh, to show up. But there, we we supplied them with papers that demonstrate it was in fact happening with this particular probe because the probe itself binds to itself as well. So there there's just um, a lot of slop in the design of the primers. And um, it's just a little bit awkward coming from someone like Dr. Buston because he's written so prolifically writing these guidelines on how to do PCR properly. And he underscores the need to run these types of software tools that screen this stuff out. Mm-hmm. So he's an author of something known as Mikey, M-I-Q-E, which is like a quality program for making sure PCR um, is done properly. And there's no way this Drosten paper would ever make it through a Mikey evaluation because mm-hmm. it just has too many of these flaws. Um, so we're a little perplexed on, on okay, he, he uh, was one of the reviewers, admitted he didn't look at the primers, but then called the, the, the paper that we put forward an utter disgrace. So, um, right. And, and I listened to that interview. It was interesting because he, he was adamant that what you, the work you guys had done was a disgrace. But then he says, oh, but I can't say anything more than that. So what is that? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, I don't know. <laughs> And the, the connection kind of cut off like halfway through his statement. So his, his train of thinking maybe got disrupted from the, the connectivity issues there. But um, I, yeah, that is just very, it's very contradictory. Now, um, he also had spoken about how he was a key ex- expert witness in the Andrew Wakefield trial. And that is where things get even more interesting. And I think before I dive into there, I, I just want to um, probably some disclaimers I should put forward for any and, and your viewers. I do not mean for, whenever I tell people this story, um, they get extraordinarily frustrated and angry when they hear about the level of deception that's going on. So I wanna make sure no one interprets whatever I'm saying as inciting any negative behavior or uh, you know, violence or any, uh, uh, I, there, there's, 
people are using this term inciting violence upon uh, and throwing it upon people's language. And there are people burning down PCR labs in Europe right now. So I, 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 wow, I did not know that. Yeah. So I do not want to be known for inciting violence. Uh, and so, uh, just take this for what it is that we're just trying to get the truth out on PCR and what's happening. Uh, we do not mean for this to, uh, encourage anyone to go do those things. Um, so, um, and so sorry, the, before you get started on the Wakefield thing, I just wanted to clarify, because I, I looked at the document and this was not the trial. This was not the, the trial of Wakefield. This wasn't the one on which his his medical license was was taken away. This was a it was a, a, a case before the federal vaccine court in the U.S., um, the okay. Michelle Cedillo case. And so, yeah, because I was confused when I saw that. I had never I had never seen that analysis before of, of his work. Yeah. And I guess the parents, the, 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 um, the representation for the parents had, had put forth some of Wakefield's work in defense of their position that their daughter had been damaged by the MMR vaccine. And so he was, Buston was critiquing Wakefield's work in that context. Um, so it's, it's just, just to clarify, this wasn't Thank like you. the- Thank you. Cause I'm, I'm not yeah. very familiar with the Wakefield case. I just noticed that his, his PCR was getting attacked. Um, yeah. By- well, what, cause what's interesting about the case against him, the case in, in the UK that, you know, that, that tore his medical credentials away from him was, it was not based on the soundness of his work. It was all based on things like, you know, did you get ethical approval for such and such? And, and it was also later torn down by a, a London high court um, who ruled on an appeal for another one of Wakefield's partners in that paper. So don't want to go off on that whole tangent, but no, um, thank you for clarifying that. Cause I, yeah. I'm not really familiar with that work. I just know, I just saw the court case relating to his, his PCR work. Um, and I think the lead author is actually Ullman or something. It's, it's not uh, Wakefield himself, but he's one of the authors on the paper. Okay. Um, but they went through his lab and combed through his records. And the interesting tidbit there is that Stephen Buston is the one who is, um, I think, hired by uh, GlaxoSmithKline to take apart Wakefield's qPCR because they used quantitative PCR to go after the measles virus. Mm-hmm. And I think they found measles virus, I think, more frequently found in some of the the, the one, one, one group of patients versus another. So yeah. um, Buston's work there was to point out all these problems in the PCR. Um, and what's interesting about his work is it mirrors exactly what we published against Drosten. <laughs> which is that, you know, you need to have an SOP. He hit up Wakefield on and ensuring he had an SOP. He, you know, his SOP wasn't very clear. Mm-hmm. He also tortured him over there being mismatches in the primer, which is a real problem. Um, but those also exist in Drosten, which he called our, when we called that out, it's an utter disgrace. When he does it for GSK, he gets 220,000 pounds in his pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, there's, uh, there were other um, issues in there as well that he, uh, Hit them up on there being um, contamination. And I think this is this is the one that I find to be less. Um, I don't believe Buston's analysis on the Wakefield contamination after having gone through it now. I, his other critiques are probably valid. Like for one, the the internal controls were 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 a little bit off in the Wakefield work, uh, but he doesn't seem to care that the Drosten protocol doesn't even have internal controls. Wow. At least Wakefield tried to have them and, and right. he scrutinized whether they worked to his satisfaction or not, but somehow he's turning a blind eye to the fact that Drosten doesn't even have them. And just to um, focus on that a little bit, because that sounds like a that sounds like a pretty big issue. Why is it important to have an internal control? What does that actually mean? Oh yeah, I'm glad you asked. So um some and some PCR tests do have them. The CDC primers have them, and it's known as the RNAs P region. Now that's targeting a human gene. 
And the reason we want to do that is that when you perform these nasal swabs, they can vary about a hundred to a, I'm sorry, a thousand to like 10,000 fold. Let me just turn off all these beeps going on. <laughs> it's going to drive me nuts. All right. Hopefully it'll do it. Um, so it, it's, uh, those swabs can vary a thousand, 10,000 fold. That, that number is sourced from a paper name as uh, the author's name is uh, D-A-H-D-O-U. H. Dadu, I think is the name. We have that in our Drosten, um, our, our, our retraction quest. We list this and demonstrate that when you're swabbing people, you can get variable amounts of human cells. So if you want to know your viral load, it's very hard to know your load without the number of cells that you collected. Otherwise, you're just collecting viruses and you don't really know what they came from. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, you don't know if you completely missed and there was no human cells and you got no virus. Therefore, that's just a bad test. Or you got you know, 10 human cells and millions of viruses. That's a very high viral load versus if you got a million human cells and 10 viruses, right? Mm-hmm. You need the two numbers to get a load. And when you don't have those two numbers, you don't actually have a load. You have a, a, a random number in space uh, that's from, a, from an RNA signal. So um, Drosten raced his test out so quickly, he didn't have an internal control. So they're flying blind on trying to gauge how much virus they have. And it can vary by as much as 1,000 to 10,000. Now, that, that's, that's a lot of CQs. That's like 10 CQs or more. Uh, and so when you ha- hear these people try and dissect, like, should we call them at 33? Should we call them at 30? Should we call them at 35? All that's irrelevant if you don't get the swab nailed. <laughs> the swab can vary by 10 CTs. The, you're never going to figure out this CT cutoff that you should call for calling people infectious because you haven't put the proper control in place to be able to calculate those CTs with any meaning. Um, and that's actually written quite uh, thoroughly in the MIQE guidelines that Dr. Boston writes about is this is what's known as a delta delta CT. You get two CT values and one's your denominator and one's your, your numerator. Um, so that's a, um, that's an important aspect that's, that is just shocking a lot of people who are in clinical diagnostics and do qPCR. I mean, we have to have those in the cannabis field. There's more stringency measuring people's weed than there is measuring pa- patients right now with COVID. And it drives people like me nuts that this, is, this kind of stuff is going on. So just uh, so you said something interesting, though. You said the CDC primers do have internal controls. And so does that mean, because a lot of the, the stuff we've been reading about the CTs, about the, the, the threshold number, every, everything, a lot of the critique of the PCR test has been focused on the cycle threshold. And yes. if it's above 35, it's, it's meaningless and all this stuff. But it sounds like if there is a control, if there is an internal control, there is some viral load measurement going on with the CDC. Okay. Yes. So yeah. it's and not they, as simple as saying the threshold is too high. Yes. Yeah. And, and I, and when they're talking about CTs, they're talking about the viral CT in absence of really discussing where, where did the, where did the RNA-P CT come out? And if you had the RNA-P assay in there, what some people would prefer to do and some people have published on this is you should be adjusting your viral CT according to your, your human one. Right, uh, that way right. it's in context to how much you sampled correctly. Right. And I don't know how many labs are, are doing a delta delta CT measurement like this. They might just be taking the viral CT and saying, okay, as long as the positive, the internal control, the RNA-sp gene shows up at any cycle, we call the CT of the, of the virus. That's probably the most simplistic thing that would get implemented, but the appropriate thing to do to get a viral load would be to actually normalize according right. to from the, from the, um, the human side. So, right. okay. um, all of that's kind of opaque. It's hard to know what every lab is doing. Um, you can see some of this information in the EUAs at the FDA, but I, it's hard to know how, well, you know, those are the compliance to that is happening in the field is, is kind of unknown. Um, 
So that, that's one point that's, I think, really striking. But, um, you know, the other side of this is the contamination front, which I do think could be an issue in COVID because we're, we're doing this stuff in parking lots. And uh, there's not a lot. Of, I've not seen studies where people put true negatives and true positives from parking lot to detector through to test the pipelines to know, all right, do we have false positives or don't we? We have a lot of argument on Twitter over the fact that Australia was really low at one point in time, but that's that's as far as you'll see people get into the the false positive um, discussion. Is they just say, "Hey, look, at some point in time we had a really low positivity. That must mean the tests globally don't have false positives," and that's that's a fraud. That's a total scam for them to do that. And I think the people propagating that know better uh, because the right way to do this is with proficiency testing in any CLIA environment is you would send truth sets around to laboratories and measure them to see which labs are getting them right and wrong. And you don't just do that at the at like the tail end of the pipeline um, where you have some positive and negative controls in your PCR. You, you actually make swabs that are dipped in virus and not, and you, you insert them into the parking lots <laughs> so that you can see that the custody from parking lot to detector isn't leaking anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that there mm-hmm. isn't contamination going on. So th- there's um, there has been a lot of response to our initial retraction request that was saying, forget it, you guys are lunatics because look at Australia. There's only one in 10,000 positivity in Australia. Therefore, the rest of the world is clean. That was measured in Australia in the summer. You, you can't take, you know, uh, rates in the summer and then assume when when the, the virome spikes up in the, in the wintertime that it's going to behave the same way. Uh, you know, we have these other background viruses, these other coronaviruses that and rhinoviruses and flu, and and we don't know how well these primers interact with all of those things. So right, if you, right. If you may take these measurements in the summer when nothing's around. You're not really not torture testing these assays for when there's a bunch of other material present. Um, so the the right way to do these isn't to do that type of magic trick where you point to the summer and say we, we're not responsible when any, anything beyond that is the, the the right thing to do is proficiency testing and you put actually true negatives and true positives to the pipeline and see what you get. So why uh, isn't that happening? I'm perplexed why that's not happening because they always say, well, that takes a lot of capacity, but they just scaled up a hundredfold in a year. So like 20, <laughs> if you just took 20% of your capacity for a week and ran true positives and true negatives through them, we'd actually answer this question everyone's been arguing about for a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, they don't seem to want to do it. And um, I don't, I, 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 it doesn't make any sense to me as to why that's that's not being done. I mean, maybe they've done it and they're just not sharing the data, but it's not, it, that's something that would address the public concern in an instant if they just put that data right. public. Here right. we are. These are all the negatives and, and positives that went through. And we're getting X number of them correct and X number of them wrong. I, I think that's really critical when they scale up because these labs are scaling so quickly that they're hiring people that are untrained. And mm-hmm. uh, they're also, um, you know, there, there's an artifact in these labs that when you're running them in the summertime and not a lot of samples are truly positive, it doesn't matter if you have contamination in the liquid handling systems because everyone's negative. But when you get to like 10% positivity, like in the wintertime, now you can contaminate pretty readily because every 10th sample is hot. So if there's cross-contamination, then it tends to happen um, quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, 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 uh, you can't take your, your summertime uh, positivity rate as any guarantee that there isn't contamination going on. That, that, that will never see it. You only see contamination when enough samples in the pipeline are hot that you actually create a signal in the wrong well. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's really important they, they do those things. Now, in, in, the, in Wakefield's case, he got absolutely butchered for contamination and I think it was unjustified. 
um, many of the other critiques were justified, but the, the contamination one, I think, is the weakest argument they have because they, um, they, they dug through his PCR files and found that he omitted this 10-minute step that's in the beginning, which is the reverse transcriptase step. This mm-hmm. is the step where the polymerase turns the target from RNA into DNA so that PCR can amplify it. It's without a doubt the most promiscuous step. They can, all types of problems can happen because it's done at colder temperatures. Um, well, Stephen Buston himself recently put out a paper in Nature demonstrating that he has a new COVID PCR assay that nearly omits that entire step, but he persecuted Wakefield for omitting it as well. Wow. Now, now to, to yeah. Boston's credit, he's he went from 10 minutes to one minute and it's still working the same, in the same CQs at one minute. However, us in the microbiology field know that if he moves it to zero, he's going to get the same result because it's happening on his bench and it's happening in the process of PCR. When you ramp your thermocycler to the first step of 95 degrees, you go past 50 degrees on the way. Uh, this, it's, it's heating up and it doesn't heat up instantly. It heats up over time. It might take a minute for it to get to 95. Uh, and, and when it does that, you go through 40 degrees, you go through 50 degrees, you go through 60 degrees, and the, the reverse transcription step happens as you're ramping the sample up to temperature. Uh, so I think the fact that he, he sees there's no difference in his CTs moving that step from 10 minutes to one minute means there probably won't be a big difference when he moves it to zero. And then he's in Wakefield territory where he mm. accused Wakefield of contamination for doing the exact thing that he's trying to do. Wow. Now, okay, so just, also- just to be clear, his the one that he has come out with, it hasn't completely eliminated it. It's just... It's moved it from 10 minutes to one minute. Okay. And they've seen no shift in CT when they do that. Uh, and that tells someone who's really familiar with this, because these enzymes, these reverse transcriptase enzymes are active at, at, at 37, they're active at 40, they're active at 50, and they probably start to heat kill around 70, right? So you, there's a wide spectrum upon which they're still, they can still make RNA. Um, so just setting up the reaction on your bench, you're going to get some priming because you're at room temperature, uh, and you might get some polymerase activity there. And then as you start to heat that sample up to get to the first step of PCR, you're going to go through a temperature gradient up to 95 degrees where you're going to get all the RT activity you need okay. uh, to cover your, your small targets. Um, so that, that particular point, I find a little bit offensive in that he's, he's completely um, eviscerated Wakefield for doing that. And now in 2020, 13 years later, he's out trying to raise money right. for a to PCR do the, the tool that thing. does the same damn thing. Wow. Wow. So, so he, um, was there, what were some of the other things that he, he basically kind of contradicts himself over and over again with, um, and, and I have a lot of this, it gets really into the weeds. I don't want to go into too much, too much detail about his critique of, of Wakefield, but it really does seem that the critiques, the critiques you had of the Drosten paper and the critiques he had of, of, Wakefield's work, there's a lot of overlap. Um, is there is there anything? Is there is there any excuse for that? Is there is there any way in which you know it could make sense in one context and not in the other? I I don't see there's the parallels are so tight that I I just can't. I've tried to put myself in his shoes and say, okay, what what is he thinking of that that we're not? Uh, and the easiest thing I can kind of I can come come up with is that. Maybe he didn't read the sixty-page addendum because because he, he maybe maybe he did the review before that came out, mm-hmm. and so he wasn't convinced by the first paper because the first paper we did rush out the door pretty quickly during Thanksgiving, and and we didn't put as many references in there as we could have to back up our arguments. So maybe he saw that, thought it was trash, and moved on. 
but um, you know, he's written so prolifically about um, about primer dimers and not doing this and, mm-hmm. and software that you need to use to prevent this. Uh, and then the mismatches in Wakefield, he completely you know hung them out to dry for, and he openly knows of that they exist in 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 the uh, the Drosten protocol. And just so, to, to clarify, because I don't I don't think we've we've said this before, the primer dimers are when it binds to itself. Is that yes? When, the when it binds to itself, itself. and the, and then the the mismatches are when the primers themselves have a have a sequence of letters. And they're supposed to perfectly match the genome you want to amplify, but there are a couple of mistakes in them. We call them, sometimes you call them SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms. And so he had a couple SNPs in his, in his primers. In fact, there's more of them in the Drosten primers than there are in the Wakefield primers. Wow. So wow. I, I'm, I, that one I can't, I, and he knows of those, he knew of those before we published anything. Those have actually already been decorated on the paper with an erratum. There's another person who filed a complaint against the paper that Eurosurveillance actually accepted, and it talks about those mismatches. And they kind of write it off as, oh, it's an editorial mistake, okay? We can, you know, fine. Um, but you start combining that editorial mistake with these other nine mistakes that we point out, mm-hmm. and it starts to get a little bit ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know um, where he's coming from there other than, I can see in the case of Wakefield, he's being supportive of the pharmaceutical lobby that wants to continue with his vaccination program. And in the case of Drosten, he doesn't want to shoot down the tool that might be justifying a vaccination program. You know, all of this PCR that we're doing is effectively spreading fear about a virus mm-hmm. that's not that lethal. And now we're seeing, uh, you know, people talk like, who is the the Pfizer board member Gottlieb, who was, uh, you know, out tweeting about how he wants to withhold vaccines from Florida if they don't wear their masks. You know, it's like, <laughs> okay, this uh, are you're the board of Pfizer? Shouldn't shouldn't we at least elect you somewhere? Yeah. You right, that? right. No, um, it's so I, I. That's the only alignment I can see is that he must be very pro-vaccine and is just defending his. You know, is is selectively using science to push that sort of pharmaceutical agenda. Um, but I, I don't, I, I don't understand. And until Eurosurveillance puts the other four reviewers out, all we have is this one leak that was accidental. Uh, I don't really know where to go with what they've said, other than there, there, no one believes them anymore. There's no transparency there. And whenever something does leak out, it contradicts everything they're saying. Um, that leads us to who, who funds them. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they're funded by the EU. So this is a journal yeah. that's state funded. And it's a journal that has a peer review that's really dark and you can't really look inside of it and seems to occasionally issue things in 27 hours when it suits state agendas. Right. Um, so that's another key point. We, we talked about this before, but the quote unquote peer review of the Drosten paper was literally 27 hours, right? At most. It was anywhere between three and a half to 27, but 27 is the longest that we can gauge based on the timestamps of the documents that have gone to the WHO, that went to Eurosurveillance and what, and what issued on their website. Okay. Uh, and that's really tight. I encourage you to speak with Simon uh, on that. He's he's done. He's he's an editor from um, Springer Nature, and he went through it. He uses the same software that Eurosurveillance uses to organize this type of review. And he's like, "There's no way this went through review. This is just a." He just thinks it's a flat out lie because of the typesetting and all the back and forth, and uh, it's just wow. uh, it, it's he can't imagine it happening that fast. And wow. if you look at everything else that's published from Eurosurveillance, that's the other thing that that Wouter. Uh, uh, went through and did. Uh, he looked, he, he scraped the time stamps off of all the papers they've ever published in the last five years. And like the closest one is 20 days. 
and that was in their rapid response. This journal was this, this wasn't sent through the rapid response. This was sent through their normal response, which has an average of 172 days to review. So they they really wow. cut some corners uh, on that front. And sorry, who's the one who scraped the timestamps? Who, who got uh, that? Akima. Uh, he, he's on uh, he's on Twitter as well. Uh, he's done some interesting work building some software tools to to monitor what's going on in COVID. But interesting. Okay. Um, one other thing I couldn't help noticing. So on your um, in the re- in the review. So how many? It looks like it's like 13, 14 authors on on the paper that you were part of. Uh, we were the the retraction request. I think was twenty two. Twenty two. Okay. Yep. One of them is Michael Yeaton, who. Yes has since been deplatformed on Twitter. I don't know if he's back up now again or, but his. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, um, I haven't heard much from him since that's happened. He did notify us saying he's, he's offline for a little bit and going to take a break. Uh, but okay. got, got bumped. He thinks he got hacked. Somebody got into his, um, Twitter account and right, posting right. some mad comments that got him deplatformed. I also saw an army of lockdowners, um, go after reporting his account. They were all encouraging each other to send in the report. So mm-hmm. there's a little bit of a uh, censorship uh, stampede that went after him. Yeah. I'm, just, um, I'm wondering if that's happened to any, any of the other authors. Um, well, we certainly had our, um, a few of the other authors have had some hacks. Uh, we've had our, we've noticed our accounts on Twitter are occasionally getting logged in from different jurisdictions. So we've had to put two factor authentication in everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, there's been a couple, um, pe- people are prying at trying to tear it down and they usually go after character assassinations. And so yep. they're trying to drag Mike through that as well. Yeah. You know, Mike, Mike's got a little bit more, you know, there's 22 authors there. Not every one of those authors agrees with each other hundred percent. I mean, I didn't even know the authors before I agreed to it. They gave me, they did something I thought that was actually very productive and that they sent me the paper without the other authors saying, what do you think? Oh. Um, so I, I wouldn't get pulled into, oh, this guy's famous or that right. guy's famous. I want to be on the same paper. I just read it and said, okay, yeah, there's problems here. I agree. Uh, and then they did the reveal saying, these are all the other authors that are you're going to co-publish with. I was like, okay, I better go investigate those people a little bit. They're going to they're gonna pull a frontline doctors on us and tear one of us right. apart. Right, right. Um, and so they're doing that. They're trying to they're trying to tear down a couple of the names on there. They either call them creationists or anti semites or you know they, they come up with names for everybody. But mm-hmm. um, the reality is you shouldn't don't look at the authors. It doesn't matter what the authors are. Look at the data. And what are they, yeah. if you're if relying on looking at the authors, then you're you know you're you're going to get trapped into some uh, sort of associative fallacy. It's it's really just what does the paper say? Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I cannot vouch for every author I have ever published with throughout all time that that I agree with them on every fact that's just I won't that's that's that makes no sense and I shouldn't have to well and the, and the fact that so I should ask you this has anyone come out with a substantive attack or critique on your on this paper because it lays out very very clearly what the problems were with with Drosten and so if you know I, it's been several months now I would think if there's an attack to be made, you know, apparently your surveillance hasn't come out, come back with, with a response. Has yeah, anyone? There's been a few folks online that have tried to uh, place some um, critiques on this, but they've never, they, they always stay away from the addendum, which has the hard facts, like the other 20 peer reviewed papers that they tend to do is point to Australia. These guys don't know what they're talking about. Australia has been negative for so long that there's no way there's false positives. Um, 
they uh, they tend to do character attacks on you know one author is a creationist maybe which which he's not he just has a different view on Darwinian um, evolution. Um, a couple are, are physicians and and they're like oh you're not a virologist so that you know they throw that around quite a bit. Right. Yeah. Um, but I've not seen a very compelling one other than you should do more wet work and I think we've addressed that with the addendums right. and here's twenty other papers that did that. There's no point to redo it. Um, uh, but uh, you can go to the Corman Drosten review. There is a blog that's running there um, that's collecting some of this. And then also there's some, there's some stuff on retraction wash where a lot of people are decorating that with um, their, their complaints, but um, it's, they tend to be very lockdown centric. When you see their replies, they're, they're not trying to get at the truth. They're trying to say that your information has consequences and can create harm if it's true uh, or if it's not true. Right, which is not the way you do science. You don't, you don't build it's in true the, or it's not. the truth into evaluating the truth. You just evaluate the truth, and if it's if it's hard truth, then it's hard truth. But don't get in this trap of well, if it's true, it might mean X, Y, and Z. Therefore, we have to look at this much differently. You know? Right, right, right. Just hilarious. So, what's so interesting to me about this is that it's like to me, it's like it's it's sort of a real time expose of the difference between traditional peer review and sort of this new thing that's evolving. And when you mentioned the the darkness and the the lack of transparency with Euro surveillance, but how typical is that with the journals? I mean, are are they much worse than than others? It's changing for the better. So BMJ now has an open BMJ, which where they do they do all open peer review. Of F one thousand has one that's open MDPI. So I think that I think people are, are catching on that we need we need to make this transparent. I also think they're going to find that that's the only way it really scales, uh, because the the biggest problem these journals have is in the past, they were kind of the network effect where they were, they were the people who could source the right reviewers because they had contacts and all these people. And so they could, they could, they could organize the peer review. Well, well, that's been obliterated by the internet and and we can all find other experts online without them. We don't need them as a middleman. So they, they need to reinvent themselves. Uh, and, uh, and I think they'll find that they can scale that much the biggest issue they have is finding reviewers. No one wants to review papers and 90% of them turn it down because they don't have time. Part mm-hmm. of that's because there's not incentives for them to make the time for it. And we've spoken about that before, yeah. but um, some of it's also a transparency problem that I think these journals and being that network didn't want to open source their network. Uh, so they wouldn't, they don't want to put the names on the reviews because over time people build a database of yeah. who all the reviewers are, and then they no longer have a, a right. Out. They lose their monopoly on, on those uh, people. So some have been resisting it. I think mainly because they want to stay in control of, of this, of the shell game that's going on behind all the review. I think the, the, the way to move forward, given we can now source experts all over the world, almost instantly through zoom is, is, is put it all transparently out there and let these people find their associations on their own and just record it all and get it all transparent. So that even if you incentivize them, like I'm not averse to that, like put bounties out. If you need a review done very quickly, like in 24 hours, cause there's a pandemic, put a $10,000 bounty out there saying, get this reviewed in 24 hours and drop what you're doing right now. And there's a big prize on the table for anyone who can do it. And we're going to put that on the paper. We're going to put your name on the paper. And if you have any conflicts that you don't disclose, the internet's going to find out and you're going to be harassed on Twitter. You know? uh, so that kind of solves, I think, a lot of the, 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 the sourcing of these, of these experts. Um, so I, I, th- I, I'm hopeful that it's going to move that way, that people in COVID finally, you know, the, 
there's been the great reveal in COVID, which now everyone in yeah. the world sees that peer review can be a fraud. And you certainly, I, I don't think you should trust it from any journal that is directly funded by the state. I think that yeah. is where you yeah. run into um, history is not, has not been kind there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even the ones that are not, you know, there's, there's a lot of pharmaceutical money going to the journals too. And there is. you can't, Imagine, I mean, even, even, you know, famously, some, some of the journal editors have come out and said, yeah, this is, it's, it's way too much, too influenced by the people selling the drugs and you can't really trust the information. This is, you know, famous editors have, have actually said that about their and own publications. So. I think Richard Horton said that. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah that, and Marcia, yeah, Marcia Engel from the um, New England Journal of Medicine is the, that famous quote that, you know, she's, she's basically true. said the same thing. That, that becomes a, um, something, you know, they have to figure out a business model that, that ties all this together. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as long as it's transparent, I think it, it will be, it'll be better received. Like right now, I think a lot of this pharmaceutical funding that might be influencing them, it's, it's kind of concealed. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you don't, right. re, the reader doesn't quite recognize that X percent of the revenues of the journal is coming, is coming from advertisement dollars from the pharmaceutical yeah. industry. Therefore they're, they have to, you know, kowtow to, to some of their demands. Um, uh, so the, the model's going to invert where I, 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 for one, I'm a big believer that I think the people doing the heavy lifting in the review deserve some of that revenue stream. And you should have a mechanism to actually incentivize them for speed when you really need it. And you shouldn't have this one size fits all. It's $3,000 or $5,000. I, th I think nature's right. now $8,000 for a paper. And regardless of whether the paper's looking at a thousand genomes or a single one, it's still $8,000 and three reviewers. Or who the reviewer is and what their qualifications are. Exactly. Like we don't get much say in that now. But um, what F1000 and MDPI are doing, and I think BMJ is the same practice, is they say, you pick the reviewers. And we're going to, the ones that you pick, if you pick all your friends, guess what? We're going to, we're going to plaster the fact that you picked all your friends in your paper. Mm -hmm. You know? And, and mm -hmm. so you, you have to, it's kind of self policing, you know? You have to, um, yeah. whatever you do, will be present on the face of your paper. So don't do anything that's going to make someone come back and uh, disparage your paper later. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I think that helps quite a bit. And I do think they can find a, a you know, a different business model here that isn't necessarily so, um, or if it is advertisement driven, at least those ads are, uh, the, those revenue streams are more transparently known and people can gauge like, okay, that journal's like 90% Pfizer. And this one's a little bit more funded, you know, through, through another source. And I'm going to go to the journal that has the funding, I think is least, you know, contradictory with what uh, I'm actually doing. The problem we have now is we don't really know which journals are funded by who. So you, you could put your paper into one that's funded against, funded by your enemy or, or some, you know, a paper, your paper may have a profound impact on that, on that industry and they, they may not like it. So um, if we had the sponsors kind of li listed on the labels of these journals, yeah, yeah. You know, we would know, okay, this is a paper that's pretty meaty against vaccines. Maybe we shouldn't send it to the one over there and we should send it over here. But um, right now, very, very little of that can be known. Yeah. Yeah. But things are changing. I mean, that's, that's, I think before, I think just in this, in the space of one year, it seems like the whole, the whole sort of landscape of, medical research in particular has just has kind of revolutionized. Is that? I think it has in that people are recognizing that when you need urgency in science, the old system can't be trusted. Mm -hmm. But the only way to really figure this out is let these papers get torn apart publicly on, on, on social media platforms. Yeah. Comment yeah. sections. And, and uh, so the, the journals be becoming um, more and more of an editorial service, if you will. Hmm. Uh, and and maybe maybe they 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 still help in the networking side of this of finding of finding good reviews, but mm -hmm. um, we're we're more and more finding out that 
paper comes out in a preprint and it is, it is either torn to shreds or validated in a preprint phase before it even makes it to the journal. Uh, and I think all of that public discussion and transparency is key as long as it's not censored. And I think there's still yeah. problems that we have to face uh, overcoming the censorship that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming back on. Um, this is going to be an ongoing conversation for, for a long time, I think. Um, anything else that you want to add about, about the Boston thing in particular? Or um... Well, well I, what I will say is that... Um, the, I think the most important thing people know is that PCR does and can work when it's appropriately applied and, and used. And, and these are important tests to have in hospitals in different, in different circumstances. I think where we're, um, where many of us are concerned is that when you deploy these on asymptomatic people at mass scale, they mm-hmm. need to be at a higher standard, not a lower standard than what we do in the food industry or the cannabis industry. And so it's really important you have these internal controls uh, and it's really important that you that you calibrate this to replication competent organisms. This, this backdrop you're seeing behind me, these are fungi from cannabis that we can count to know how many viable fungi are on the plant. And then we can correlate that with our CT value to know whether our CT value is in fact giving us the right uh, predictability of infectiousness. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. getting skipped in a lot of the COVID testing and that should never be the case. These things should always get calibrated to know what's infectious and what isn't that way. Um, we're not over quarantining large parts of the population. I think that's what's been so destructive in COVID is they skipped that step in many places and we're probably quarantining five to 10 X more people than need to be. Um, and I've been measuring that off of some of that's discussed in our addendum, but there's a paper from Liotti that goes over this and you can see that they, uh, the infectious window is like seven days, but you can be PCR positive for 70 days, right? Right, so, right, right. Uh, you're, we're basically, when you apply this at mass scale, you end up quarantining the nurses and the family members of the people in the healthcare system, and it backfires on your healthcare system trying to save it. So, yeah. Um, or maybe we shouldn't be applying it on a mass scale. We shouldn't be applying it asymptomatics is a valid point. Uh, particularly, we shouldn't be calling a QPCR positive case that's asymptomatic, a medical case. Right. Because it's unethical right. to quarantine medical cases unless they're infectious. So that's a, that's a huge oversight in 2020 yeah. uh, that, that led to a lot of this. So um, really physicians should be involved to, to be able to, to make sense of the data with the symptom profile that they have. Right. Uh, Which is kind of what the who is saying now in a yes, kind of yes. wishy-washy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, Hopefully it gets better. It looks like it's getting better. And yeah. well, um, I think, and as you say, transparency is key. And I think there's, there's never been a time before when there's been such a spotlight shown on just how, how, how dark and murky and how unaccountable so much of these systems are. And I think that can only be a good thing that we're, you know, yeah, maybe not everyone's paying attention to it, but I think there's so much more attention now on the research and just on things like testing and centralized control of testing and all of these things where the centralization is key. And I'm, I'm, I, the best thing that could come out of COVID is for people to understand that decentralization is what is, is anti-fragile. Mm-hmm. When you mm-hmm. centralize it's fragile and yeah. the decentralization is what brings more spotlight to the problem, more eyes on it and more trust. And uh, if it doesn't happen, if Bitcoin doesn't tell us about that right now, I don't know what will. <laughs> right. Uh, but th- this is fiat science. This is state-funded science. We need a separation of science and state because this is what happens when the state gets control over it. And I think you probably saw those. Pa- Did you see those panic papers that came out of Germany? No. 
Oh, all right. I have to find the so. translations for you. They just came out this week, but oh. basically evidence that the government sat down with the scientists and told the scientists to fabricate the numbers up to a million or more deaths in Germany so that they could scare the hell out of everybody. And, and Wow. Oh, my God. That's um, a smoking gun. It's a, very, it's a big smoking gun. And <sighs> I think some of the people that are involved in this, this Drosten paper may have some fingerprints on that. Um, but uh, that, that's what happens if you, if you let politicians get involved and start bending yeah. the science and overly funding the science. Then you get the scientists to say the things that the politicians want to lever power uh, over people with, and it becomes uh, it becomes a virtuous cycle that you have to get out of. So, uh, the you know the funding source, and the transparency, and all these things are really really critical. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again for coming on. Um, all right, well, thank I'll, you. Yeah, and uh, safe travels, and um, talk to you again soon. Yeah, indeed. All right, thanks, Brittany. Take care. Okay, thanks. Bye.